Welcome into the Storied Podcast. This week's episode, me and Ruben share stories about our scouting experiences. With 4th of July behind us, we share about our summer and off-season preparation that helped us harvest our first Minnesota whitetail and a Montana mule deer buck. Hopefully everybody's out doing some off-season scouting as their own, and hopefully they pick up a few things on our stories about scouting and preparation. Well, hello everybody to yet another episode of Story Podcast. I think it's me and Ruben again. We had a few weeks of having guests on and we're going to go back to the old faithful this week with scouting and preparation for hunts all looming above us in the present moment. Um, we're going to share our stories on our success on different scenarios, starting from scratch in new places, new puzzle, new puzzles to put together and what we did and how it led us to success that way. But we'll start it off like we usually do and talk about meals. Um, I guess I'll go, well, you go first, Ruben. Uh, so I'll talk about a meal that I just had last night um, with Maddie and her brother. I did not uh, acquire the meat, but uh, my boss was in Sitka, Alaska uh, about a week and a half ago fishing and he, he came home with some uh, king salmon and some ling cod two two of the back seal packages busted so he's like you need to take these and eat these because you know they're gonna freeze or burn if, you know we gotta eat them so i'm like sure i'll take that off your hands um and actually i made the ling cod first last week when uh some of maddie's friends were in town and i just made ceviche out of it i've Diced it up into, you know, little half inch cubes and just uh, marinated it in lime juice and chopped white onion for like two, three hours. And then added in, you know, diced tomato, jalapeno, avocado, um, threw in a little bit of salt and pepper and tiny bit of garlic and uh, cilantro. And that, that eat it with tortilla chips. It's kind of like, I never really had ceviche before, to be honest. It's it's literally like pico de gallo, but with raw fish in it that's, you know, cooked because of the lime juice acidity. It's got to be saltwater fish because freshwater fish is tapeworms and other parasites that you need to cook. But, um, so that was a big hit. And uh, then the king salmon I'm, I cooked up last night, just uh, about as basic as you can get with... Um, that kind of meat. I mean, it's so good. You don't have to do much, literally just olive oil on it, salt, pepper it, and uh, throw some slices of lemon on top and grill it at like 375 for about 15 minutes. And that's with in tin foil. Nope. Straight on the or grill. Just right on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Skin, skin side down. down. Yep. Skin side down 375, 15 minutes. And uh, as a side, I made a wild rice salad with uh, some. So it was like wild rice with like a chopped apple, celery, parsley, cranberries, and mixed with like uh, um, or like juice from a squeezed orange, a little apple cider vinegar, and salt and pepper. So yeah, it was a good like citrusy kind of like um, very flavorful, but a little bit light, you know, with the fish and like the salad. So I mean, I can eat a lot of that stuff, but. You just feel good after you eat it. It's not like sitting in your yeah. stomach, you know? Yeah, that sounds good. Light meals that are just good for you. Yeah. But yeah, so I had um, I had elk tacos. 
And this, it's pretty much not so much on the meal, but I'm going to go into like, it was canned meat. It was bottled meat that my mom and grandmother did. And um, it was kind of one of those nights where it's like, I just want a quick meal. So I pulled that bottled meat out, put it in a pan, fried it, put taco seasoning and um, put it over tacos with anything, you know, from the garden, tomatoes, you could, you could do whatever with tacos it's all up to you usually i make my tacos too big so i usually can't fold them up but yeah that was part of it but yeah the canning process i mean is is simple i just i don't know if a lot of people know about it but you know it's pretty much you take it depends on what you're doing cups or, or uh, pints or quarts but you take your meat you put a little, a little olive oil brown it uh put it in the jars pack it in the jars and then also too with when you're browning the meat, you put garlic powder on it and you put it in there and then you can do one of two things. I, I, I've seen people just add like a salt brine and then fill it up, fill that water up to the top, make sure there's no air bubbles in it and then pressure cook it. And then I've also seen people take um, like stock or nor or any one of those, um, uh, what kind of yeah stock type things and fill it all the way up and then pressure cook it for 75 minutes and and there you go. You got some bottled meat for when you're when you're like fast paced and you got a bunch of stuff going on. But I thought that was a cool thing. But yeah, that's that's it, interesting. But, like I I was thinking about what you still need to do messing around with making my own dehydrated meals for the backcountry with some like ground yeah. and stuff like making a burrito bowl and like zip you know a vac seal. I gotta, I gotta figure that out. I don't have a dehydrator or a vac seal, but I think I have some yeah, friends I, that might. I've seen. I got a dehydrator. I probably could give you, but I've seen. Uh, I've seen they make big dehydrators with like square things you can put your bags and stuff in. I wouldn't buy one. That's mm-hmm. I don't have that much money, but hmm. I'm like that's pretty cool to <laughs> make your own meals. Yeah, because that'd be I like mean, grab and go, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. We've got I mean, the time now. Grabbing... It's summer. We're not out hunting every day, so might as well yeah. make some up for yeah, when but... you're busy. I agree. But sometimes when you are busy, you know, you're out scouting or things like that, home late, uh, like what we've kind of been doing. <clears throat> I yeah. think that's a good meal for it. But, I mean, what have you been doing? I feel like we've been in touch and I've seen some things that you've been out there trying to chase some elk and and, yeah. Uh, um, before we get into that, yeah. why don't we just quick go over, I don't know if I've talked to you about like, um, what tags do you have for the coming season? And that kind of sets the stage for what we're doing, you know, as far yeah. as scouting goes. So why don't, why don't you go first, say what, what you're going to be chasing this fall? Good point. Yeah. So my, my main focus is like in earlier episodes, you know, everybody's probably got to know us by now or actually knows us. Um, I lived out in Utah, so I finally drew a non-resident uh, archery deer tag there that starts in August, runs till mid-September. So I'll be out there in August chasing, chasing uh, mule deer. And then it'll roll right into whitetail season in Minnesota and then after that, once that concludes in October, I'll probably plan to um, go to Wisconsin in November and chase some whitetails there. And then we'll see what late season happens. But pretty <clears throat> basic season for me. But how about you? So so you got your um, 
Utah mule deer buck tag. Then you got a Minnesota archery buck tag and a Wisconsin archery buck tag. And you're just, you just, you don't mess around with the, the rifle hunting. I, I usually don't. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to change this year. We'll see how it happens. But now in Minnesota, they just passed. You can have crossbows just like Wisconsin. So crossbows now are introduced into the state of Minnesota. And then also a lot of the units in the CWD zone are now rifle. So no more shotguns here in Minnesota. So people are going to have rifles in their hands come November 2nd or 3rd. With the, with the crossbows becoming legal, did they have any special season for that? Or is it exactly the same as archery? Yeah, it overlaps archery. Like, but like the regulations are the same. They're just the tag is good for I, archery. I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that's what I saw. That was um, was was their goal is just going to have it overlapped with archery season. So you you could you could use a crossbow or a um, vertical bow. Yeah. So that I feel like there's been a lot of talk about this in the hunting community over the last few years, decade. Um, I am mm-hmm. firmly in the stance that if you're going to allow that, they cannot be, you have to limit the opportunity on crossbows because they are a more efficient weapon and they, they also attract more people to archery hunting who would not archery hunt. So there's more people hunting and buying tags. I think it's really, you're overlooking a lot by saying it's the same. I mean, in, uh, the County where I grew up hunting, they had one of the, in Wisconsin, they had one of the uh, town hall deer meetings and they showed data and the number of bucks harvested during archery season when crossbows became legal went up by one third and it stayed like that. So like, you know, I I don't, there, there's no argument in my opinion that they are the same as bows. They're not. No, and if you want to use one, like, there. I mean, if you want to use one, that's fine. I think as far as management goes, you're really doing disservice to the resource and the opportunity for archery hunters to say, this is the same because it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, correct. I mean, I, I think the management goal there for the Minnesota DNR and that stance mm-hmm. is in the CWD zone, they want a lot of these deer down. They want deer numbers lower than what they are now. So might as well put a more advantageous tool when it comes to a firearm and archery equipment. So I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens. I'm somewhat against it, but I don't have to get my opinions into it. So, yeah, but getting back to what we're I'll, talking I'll be about, out there hunting anyway. So, so you're going <laughs> but, for a mule deer buck, a Minnesota whitetail buck, and a yep. Wisconsin whitetail and buck. Oh, bow. I mean, maybe I'll pick up a firearm when it comes to Wisconsin firearm season, but it'll be all archery equipment this year for me. Yeah. But Unless you decide you? to get a bonus doe or something. <laughs> yeah correct yeah <laughs> um yeah so i ended up drawing nothing this year in montana <clears throat> i mean last year i drew a bonus uh cow elk tag and i for the second year in a row drew a bonus uh whitetail either sex tag so I mean, and I drew antelope last year too, so I wasn't very surprised. Actually, antelope still is not out, but I would assume I'm not going to draw that. Um, so I'll be going in the fall with it's still. I mean, Montana is still ridiculous how much opportunity you have, but I'll be going in the fall with my general elk tag, my general deer tag, and a black bear tag. Um, so honestly, the uh, I'm going to go for elk and deer like I normally do. Well, not really. So I have a little bit different like approach of what I want to do this year. Um, 
Archery elk is always number one. I'm trying to shoot a bull with a bow. But I really want to get a fall black bear this year. I'm almost out of bear grease and I'm out of bear meat. And um, so that's going to be high priority. And then also I've shot a whitetail with my bow the last two years. And I have shot a mule deer buck uh, two year, like 2020 and 2021. I shot a mule deer buck with my rifle. I didn't shoot a mule deer last year. So I'm kind of one to see if I can spot and stalk a mule deer with the bow to fill my general deer tag. I feel like that would be a good, you know, I would lower my standards as far as the size and age class of animal if I was going to do spot and stalk with the bow because I've never killed one with a bow. But I think that would be um, kind of my focus on deer this year. Although I will hunt them with a rifle if it comes to it in November. Um, so yeah, that's uh, kind of what I'll be doing in the fall. The bear thing is actually going to be interesting because the two fall bears I've shot were both very opportunistic. And I wonder if um, I'm actually looking for them, if it's going to be a little harder. <laughs> it's going to be harder. <laughs> yeah. It's always what happens. Yeah. Yep. So that's a good segue into talking about, um, I guess, what well, we've yeah, been up to lately and what we're going to talk about with our stories today. Um, yeah, we'll go back and forth on that. You know, we had, like we said just now, we have what tags in our pockets. Um, when it comes to that Utah tag, preparation is just kind of <laughs> booking the trip and getting everything figured out logistically. I've been out there, so I might just formulate a plan on where to go and hopefully get in there a few days earlier to try to locate some deer. But I've pretty much been up to just running, getting in shape for that tuning up my bow that's a big thing i just bought new arrows kind of shooting trying to figure out the grains and how like not compensate so much penetration and power versus speed i still want you know distance and that to it so i'm flirting flirting around a lot with that stuff right now and then also been out in the woods uh walking for deer i have cameras already set i got seven of them out four different pieces of public right now and I found some good sign the other day. I have, you know, we all talk about these buck beds when it comes to whitetail land. And you see, you walk into a bed, you think it's off a point or something, and there's just rubs around it. Because this bed, it was primo habitat. I don't know if the wind, like, well, what happened in this situation was it was probably a 15-year-old clear cut. Like, it was clear cut, well, shelter wood cut 15 years ago. They left a lot of the white oaks. And all of it is as tall as me. I'm 6'4". It was probably like five to six feet of tall brambles, blackberries, all sorts of forage, young maples, all sorts of high stem density stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so deary. It is ridiculous. And it's on the edge of CRP with crops. I mean, there's so many edge. And then the guy's private property has, I mean pines and all sorts of there's so many different habitat features in this piece of property that i'm like this is so good and it's overlooked as well i think there's other things i don't want to give it away too much there's a lot of things that kind of create barriers where hunters can't get in or overlook those um but i was walking in this spot and all of a sudden i was checking these points out not sign not sign and i'm like i got one more point that i gps'd I'm like i'm gonna walk over to that so i walked over to it and I found these huge trails because velvet bucks, I feel like don't want to be into too thick of stuff this early because they have giant, like sensitive antlers right now. So they don't want to be hitting on trees like they're going to do in the fall. 
But these areas were just carved out with deer trails through this thick stuff. And I'm like, holy cow, this looks good <laughs> on the edge of CRP and stuff. So I walked around and all of a sudden I found this one bass, basswood cluster that went and there was just rubs, old rubs from last year all over it. And I'm like, ooh, this looks good. And I'm like, there should be a bed somewhere around here. I was digging around and all of a sudden, boom, I saw right through the trees, saw one bed on the edge of a dead tree and then another bed just off on the other side, kind of two different access routes that slash escape routes. And I figured they're kind of set up for two different winds. And I, then I walked it back out that trail where they all came together and hung a camera. So I'm excited for that camera big time <laughs> to see what happens. So we'll see what happens in probably a month. I'll check it, but nice. Uh, what have you been up to? Um, I've been running around yeah, trying to, just kind of poke around in new places. I've got my, you know, unit, the one unit that I'm definitely going to hunt this fall for elk. So I, I'm, I've hunted that a lot and I've been in the elk a lot there and I don't really feel like I need to go back down to that exact spot to like run around in there. I know there's going to be elk in there um, somewhere, but uh, I, I tried a couple different spots out and set or hiked into one spot by set cameras in a different spot. The one spot was like a long day it was in the wilderness it was about a 16 mile hike when the day was over they're definitely out back there but it's like five miles in there and i it's a big burn area so there's a small area of actual security cover but a lot of food so um it would be kind of tough to hunt them it's kind of interesting because it'd be you need to go in with another person and you need to go overnight for sure but it's also like one security area so it's kind of a one-shot deal because if you blow them out of there you, you might might be screwed but then the other spot so I want like to open open cover with just like pockets of like dark timber. So there's not much, not for it's not like much for them to hide. Or... The dark timber was maybe like 500 acres up on the rim of this whole thing at like 9,000 feet, uh, and then the yeah. whole valley, like three miles long, is burnt to crisp. You know, like not not like there's a bunch of forbs and stuff. It's five year burn, but like as yeah. far as actual overhead cover, there's nothing. So they can see you from Wonder, like a half a mile away. Say, that's probably a great spot for a big bull. Yeah. Like to live up on that ridge, just watch everybody trying to hunt them. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, yeah, but it's, it's right, a ways in there. Part. But then the other spot was a more local spot. And I did find elk sign in there. I also scared a sow and cub up a tree really close. So that was fun. Um, black bears. And then uh, I found a, a huge pile of shit there. Biggest bear shit I've ever seen in my life. Um, there was a small chance that there is a grizzly in the area, but I mean, if it's a black bear, it's a monster black bear. Um, but yeah, so there were elk and, uh, and definitely a lot of bears in that one spot, but that, that was a kind of easy access spot. So I'll see what's on the cameras, but I feel like that probably gets hunted pretty hard in the fall. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what I've been up to and um, it kind of rolls right into what we're talking about today. We're telling stories about a whitetail that Ryan shot and a mule deer that I shot both in 2020, but the stories, we'll tell the actual killing stories on another podcast, but the stories we're telling right now have to do with the time of year, which is what do we do to put ourselves in the position to be successful through our scouting? So, um, I don't know, Ryan, you want to kick it off with, uh, what you yeah, have for sure. And I think to mention too, our stories are both, you know, to start this off, even my story, our stories are when we first moved out to those areas, you moved to Montana in 2020 fresh. I moved back to Minnesota, well, to Minnesota in 2020. 
So these are totally new areas for us, new species in some aspects slash different areas. So, so I'll start this story with, um, I moved back in 2020 to the Midwest, finally going to have a chance to hunt some whitetails. So on opener, I was fortunate enough to have one nice buck emerge from the buckthorn, step out right in an opening at 20 yards, sun glistening right on him. You could see that big, beautiful gray coat that he must have shed his summer coat a little earlier. Just a beautiful buck. Walked right out 20 yards. I drew back on him and put it right on him and let it go. And he was hit. He came right to me, (laughs) veered off just a little bit and tipped over 40 yards. So I was fortunate enough to get one. But this isn't a story of that deer this is the story of the scouting and all the preparation that led up to getting that deer um so like i said i moved here in 2020 it was december time frame and i was just waiting for spring to break i uh during that time frame in the winter time i just made a list i was on my computer on the mapping services just looking at all these pieces of public property And each piece, I would kind of go down and highlight areas, where to check out, where should I go. And I just made a list of places to start hiking. So when spring broke, I got out there and just started putting boots on the ground, started hiking. And I just started to build that library of all these public pieces and what's good, where stands are and everything. But another thing I learned though there was that just reading sign on the ground and then GPSing it all and just seeing how the deer are using this different landscape um, coming from private land. And then now this is public and then also coming from flat glaciated area now to hill country. So this is a totally different ball game for me. And I was just trying to read of how the deer are using these side points. They're using these thermal hubs, all these where the scrapes, where the beds lay out, where the rubs are. It's it was just nice to walk and get used to and reading sign. First thing I did to formulate this puzzle, hunting is like a puzzle, I think to me. Um, it's just building up all these puzzle pieces and putting them together, putting you in a better probability to shoot a deer in the long run. So first thing I did after walking all that in the spring was starting to hang cameras. Um, and then I would check those every three to four weeks. And uh, there was one spot in particular I wanted to get cameras on. And this was early. This was like April time frame, mid-April, almost into May. So I hung this camera. It was a spot that was just ripped up. There was scrapes everywhere, heavy trails that looked like a bunch of cows were living in there. (laughs) And then the rubs, too. There was rubs, very thick stem density, good bedding ridges. Just it laid out perfectly. Um so this was one that I'd focused in on very early, but I hung a camera to see what was there. So in the meantime, I just kept scouting, driving areas, marking down what crops were in, what fields, trying to find deer, find areas that had a little more deer density versus others. Um, the main one too was just finding access to all these pieces. Where would access come from? Where would people get in? Um, kept moving cameras and hiking all summer long. So, so pretty much I was just checking places not to go (laughs) and not places to go. I just wasn't finding good enough sign, but along with building that library of places not to go and maybe a good spots, 
um, I started to hone in and spend a little more time on that one piece I found earlier. I checked the cameras, probably it was like June time frame, and I had a very high density of bucks. There wasn't much for antler growth that time, but you could see it was like one third to almost 50% of bucks versus the does. Very high buck density. And I'm like, this is a spot I got to hone in on and try to find how to hunt it better. There, I just started to gather more intel on this spot, you know, locating the food sources. What were they eating? Acorns, soybeans, um, alfalfa, what was what was all around? And so I was also trying to watch the deer. I would hike up into these areas, bring my spotting scope and set up far away and just watch where are these bucks coming out? What food sources are hot right now? And then from that, I was trying to move cameras and trying to get on those trails where they're feeding up towards towards this and in between bedding. Um, and then through just through just the uh, summer, I was monitoring my camera and accessing try trying to access with the appropriate wind that was blowing down valley or wherever where I could dump my scent where um, the bucks wouldn't know. And every time I was in there since I didn't know how the wind was going to roll, roll out in hill country, I was always bringing my wind indicator and just seeing how the thermals would pull it uphill or go in shaded spots where it would kind of drop in a cool area or how wind was doing certain things in areas. Some areas I couldn't hunt. There was a lot of sign there, but I just really couldn't hunt them. So I did hone in on this one area and this one area, I had a lot of pictures of these bucks from a certain time frame. And it was all daylight. I could get in there. It looked like from uh, four in the morning to five till it got light because they weren't traveling until six to seven thirty. And I GPSed a bunch of trees where gave me the best ambush spot for this kind of little hub area. And also it kind of gave me the fact of that I really could not hunt this when it was very windy. <laughs> My wind would do all sorts of stuff. I had to sit there on a calm thermal push day with a little Southwest wind was going to give me the best opportunity. So every time I was in there, I was trying to get those spots that I would know where to go. And then also I would time myself how long it took me to get in there. So I could walk in there quietly and set up my stand and be in the right spot to potentially shoot these deer. Um, and then also when I was going in, I was just, always watching out and seeing if there's any other human activity, people setting stands. I did see that and some new stand sets a little closer to access. And I'm like, okay, well, nothing's really changed with the deer. So we'll see. So closing in on season, I would keep walking and trying to find other spots where I did find a few other spots, you know, hunting public land. It's nice to have options. And just monitoring people, how are they driving around and looking at deer. So four weeks before season, I checked my camera one more time. And this time, I had one hunter walking around. And he was walking right through where I was potentially going to set up. And I checked that camera. And after he walked through, the deer just kind of disappeared for a second. And I'm like, is this going to be good anymore? Or did he just kind of blow everything up? So... I did watch the fields a few more time and the bucks kept on using that same food source. So I'm like, maybe they kind of curled around. We'll see. So two weeks before season, I was seeing it was going to be forecasted a southwest wind and calm. 
So I'm like, perfect. Thermal drop through the valley. When the wind picks up a little bit, it's going to give me a little more time pushing through the valley. And I had kind of till eight, nine o'clock when that thermals are going to grab really hardcore and pull uphill where I think those bucks are bedded and it's going to get all swirly. So I hopefully mastered while I was scouting, I mastered my access in, I mastered the tree I wanted to set up in. I also mastered the wind and what's going on in that area at the certain time. And then hopefully which it worked out that way. I found a good bedding area where they were using and then also the food source where they're going. And I was right in between where a little pinch point where, where that buck was going to stroll through right at seven, six thirty. So I got everything laid out, know what time I'm going to have to wake up, know what time I'm going to have to get in there. And it, um, it led me to success. I know in this circumstance, I feel like I got lucky in a lot of ways because the forecast was right. I wasn't set up for a lot of different scenarios. I was kind of very specific in one situation, but luckily it all worked out. So I had the right conditions, luckily. And then also too, um, I had everything set up uh, from tree, all those little nuances that I took notes while walking in to try to be like, okay, this is, I'm finding sign, but also I'm finding an ambush spot every time. Even if I'm not going to sit it, I would mark down a tree like, okay, if a deer was using this and I had pictures of it, where could I ambush this deer? Where's my best wind access? Where's my best access? I don't want to leave ground scent across these trails. So they pick me off and I was just taking constant notes this whole time, especially my take home here is learning a new area. Notes are your best friend. Um, you're going to forget small little things that might help you further into the season. And if you constantly take notes on this or GPS, write a little note on each GPS or even take a picture if you wanted. If there's a bed, take a picture of it, write a note, probably this wind. It's all all good. But through this scouting experience, I think what helped me was I was very specific in the situation, which is not good, but luckily it helped out, but it was just staying focused and always think when you're going in there, so you're not bumping deer or your wind is good, always being persistent and focused through this whole scouting process. Always think of like what's going on. Think of the next best thing. Um, Cause that's what I think led me to uh, harvesting that deer was just, being thoughtful each time and being consistent with what's going on and always thinking about these small things because small things, small puzzle pieces are sometimes a finishing touch on building that whole puzzle to be successful and, and harvesting mature deer on public too. So, yeah. Did you ever see that buck on camera before you killed him? Yep. Yep. So I didn't say earlier, but I had like five shooter bucks on camera that were like 150s and he eventually he scored 138 he's right behind me but he was like number five on my list but i'm like i can't i can't take this up because i I was even happy with that because we walked out to go get the game cart and there was two cars in the parking lot by me and then another four cars down the road and i actually ran into a hunter and said i shot a doe and uh (laughs) He's like, yeah, I've just been running into, you know, hunters and it's just been tough. And I'm, I'm like, I was, I was in the spot within the spot because 
it like there was a lot of pressure around me besides the little hole where I was in. Well, and that's one of those things that you cannot scout for when you're going into a new spot is if you've never hunted that spot before, you don't know what the hunting pressure is. And that's a huge factor. Mm -hmm. So through that, I would say you probably made the right decision in taking the first good buck that you were willing to take because who knows what would have happened even after the morning was over, like how everything got shaken up with all that human presence in there. Yeah, it's a cool thing now, not like knowing hunting here a few years it's kind of crazy you put all this effort in i kind of do the same stuff each year putting all this effort to find a deer for opening day and night and all of a sudden it kind of just gets shaken up yeah and like deer kind of move and you have to be tight to their bed now it's like a whole different cycle within a week or two but yeah it's like you have a whole whole bunch of prep for one day and then after that it's learn as you go (laughs) yep totally yeah find now what where they're at i mean it changes like this i always say well whitetail hunting is kind of a phase game it's like deer are in certain phases and you just got to be anticipatory and be on top of those and it's it's a fun game but yeah it was kind of cool um because that was the first time i hunted whitetails in a long time being out west Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sweet. First time back, I hunted a whitetail and got him with my bow. And still got that it. was kind of a, a cool, <laughs> a cool movement or a yeah. cool thing. But, so that was your whitetail in a new spot you've never hunted before and on public because you were, you were always hunting private pretty much when you were in Wisconsin growing uh-huh. up. Mine is about um, my first mule deer I ever killed. Um, and it was my first hunting season in Montana. So, um, so yeah, I moved to Montana in March of 2020. So I actually couldn't even buy a resident tag until I think it was like September 17th or something that year. It it was, uh, so I missed like a good two and a half weeks of elk hunting, you know, right away. But I moved to Montana in March and the first thing that I wanted to go do, just learn some new land. The you know best way to do that is go out and try to find some shed antlers and start walking around to figure out where animals are and how they're using the landscape. Uh, I found this one um, mountain that is still one of my favorite places to hunt now. I had no idea what was going on there when I moved here though. I just thought it looked pretty decent. Um, one side of it was, you know, burnt. Uh, it was pretty, pretty steep incline up the ridge and uh you know steep enough to the point where if you're not physically fit you're not doing that period um so i was like i'm gonna go check that out and uh just go look for some sheds and kind of start you know poking around the areas around here and seeing what's what so i i got out there on a shed hunt and i really didn't find too many sheds i actually found uh a whitetail set at like seven thousand feet which it's pretty funny because I'd like moved out from Illinois growing up in the Midwest to Montana. And the first antlers I find on the top of a mountain are whitetail, which before I even moved to Missoula, I didn't even realize how many whitetail there are around here. There are way more whitetail than mule deer in the valleys and, and, and they go up the mountains quite a ways. Um, but on that scouting or not scouting on the, the shed hunting trip, I did find uh, fresh elk tracks and elk sign up there. So I was kind of like, okay, there's elk up here. Uh, and then that, that day too, I saw some mule deer, not on the mountain I was on, but across the valley. So I was like, okay, there's mule deer in the area. This, this is interesting. Cause that was like my, you know, number one was the elk, but number two, I'd never killed a mule deer before. So 
I, you know, started making a game plan. Like if I can scout this out and there are both up here, maybe I can, you know, have a shot at either one, which in hindsight in, in like any advice I'd ever give anybody is focus on one species because you're just doing two things bad if you're trying to hunt two things at the same time. But that's not, that's what I had in my head. Yeah. Master unknown, they say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, oh, so there's elk and mule deer up here. So I'm going to scout this out over the summer. And um, this this mountain, it, it's like got three main ridges that come off of it. And it's probably about seven, seven, eight miles across as the crow flies. And it's a thirty five hundred foot gain to the top. And um, going up those ridges, like even though it's the, the most gradual approach, it's still really steep. I mean, like you went there, Ryan. I mean, one of them is like, you go about 1500 feet up and a little over half a mile. It's like it, you know, if you kick a rock, that thing's going all the way down to the bottom, like steep yeah, stuff. It's climbing. You're yeah. leaning forward all the way up. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, at first I was even like, is this where, like what all of Montana hunting is like? And, uh, that is a particularly steep ridge, but yeah, there is the, like, I, I wasn't prepared for the steepness of the mountains out here, even though like in the Missoula area, besides like the Bitterroot range, there's nothing that's like, I got a bunch of Alpine, like above tree line stuff, but the way that the geology is, it's like these mountains are like domes. So like, there's never a flat, like, it, it's not like it goes up and flattens out. It's just like, you get to the top and you start going straight down the other side. They're like spine or album or like spine ridges. So I was like, well, at least I know that like probably nobody's going to be up here. Um, but now I got to figure out what's going on with the animals. Um, so I decided to go out there and, and set up a couple trail cameras because that's going to tell me, you know, kind of, well, it can't, it can tell me a bit of what's going on there because there's definitely been times that I've set up trail cameras and they didn't show anything on the trail cameras and there definitely were animals in the area using it. It's just the camera wasn't set properly or or it wasn't, you know, doing something wrong. But so I, I packed up my pack and there's like, uh, you can go from the front side on a main road, or you can go up this road that was on the map. That's like a single lane, you know, old mining road kind of deal. And so I decided to take that up there. And that to this day is one of the sketchier roads I've ever been on with a truck. It's like <laughs> super steep incline, barely wide enough for your truck one side is like most of the way if you you roll off of it you're going down a few hundred feet and it's all you know loose like rock it's like loose scree you know for a lot of it and i'm glad that i never ran into someone else on that road because i don't know where you would turn around like you'd have to back up like a half a mile you know but i took this road up and i got to a point where i thought i'd be able to get another mile in and there's just no way like there was a land, a little rock slide and stuff. And there's no way you're getting your truck over it, even though there's still this road grade past it. So I'm like, okay, well, at least I know nobody's driving all the way up to here, unless maybe they had a side-by-side or ATV, but you're not going to truck over it. So I parked there hiking a mile and then I'm going to ascend the backside and I still have to pitch up about a thousand feet on that side too, but I'm already gained 2000. So like, it was really steep, but then you can get to the top of this ridge and it's, it's totally different on top. It's like crazy steep sides. The front side is burned. There's some cliffy stuff. The back sides are totally forested and these really steep, you know, faces. But then when you get to the top, it's like flat as a pancake for like 
a mile. Like it's just like a flat top of this thing. And it's just got all this lodgepole pine up there. And, um, you know, just a bunch of like partridge berry and stuff like that up there. Um, and, uh, like Oregon grape and all, all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, now I'm up here time to like start figuring out how, how do animals use this? Um, one thing that was very apparent to me was that there is no water. Like there are several streams coming off of this mountain, but they don't start having surface water until about a third of the way down from the top or even more. So I'm like, I mean, I know that like animals, if they have a water source, they they'll travel pretty far to it. But I'm kind of thinking to myself, like if you're talking about elk, a herd of elk, or if you're talking about wallows and whatnot, I'm like, there's really nothing here. It's like very rocky or very rocky mountain, very straight downhill, like streams with like plunge pools. It's not like any like seeps or anything where you're going to find that stuff where, you know, elk would like to wallow in or where there's an actual like ponding of water. It's just all running off. So I'm like, okay. I mean, I knew there were elk here though. And I started walking around and I actually found a few raked trees that were definitely elk. Unless it was the biggest deer on the planet, you know? Um, so I'm like thinking in my head, well, maybe they are here during rut if we got these raked trees here. And uh, and also along with the raked trees, I was finding a lot of bear marks trees. So bears will get up on their hind legs and, and claw at the trees like above their head and make these these marks. The the place in the country that I've seen the most of those ever in one area was in uh, in Utah, northeastern Utah in the Uintas. There was one ridge I went up to where it was like every other tree and there were a lot of trees was like just ripped up. I was like, there's got to be just bears everywhere in here. But so I saw I, I noticed that took took note of that and I started hiking around and it's kind of like like I was saying all this kind of like. Not a lot of brows, just an overstory of lodgepole, like kind of just like. Very small forbs and stuff on the on the bottom of the forest floor, a lot of sticks, a lot of deadfall too. And so I'm like, okay, I need to find a different aspect. I need to figure out where the sun isn't roasting this in the day so that there's a little different vegetation, a little different moisture. And I wrapped around the top of the mountain to like where I, about the extent where I'd come up shed hunting, but like a few hundred feet above that. And I drop in and then there, it it becomes a little bit more grassy because it's Southeast facing instead of like Southwest facing. So it's got a little less, you know, it's not the North slope. It's not completely forested because that's bad too. Cause there's no grass growing underneath the trees cause they're so thick. So I found the sweet spot and there's some, there's some grass there. And, and it was also at a point where it was like a, not as extreme of a slope and you could see down through the mountain and the wind up there was like blowing up the hill. And I'm like, this would be a good spot to find some beds. And lo and behold, I found quite a few beds right in there. And some of them were really fresh to the point and well used. You you know, a bed's really well used when there's no veg growing in it. And also like mule deer will like break out dirt to make a flat spot. And I found a few of those. And one of them even had like still wet from like standing up and took a piss and then like went, you know, Um, do you find like hair and stuff in those beds as much or not really? You know what, Ryan, after you must have sent me a Snapchat of your weekend stuff showing yep. me hair in there. And for some reason, yep. I just never really looked closely. And I, I found a bed two days ago and I just picked it, picked at it and there was some hair in there. <laughs> that means that's good. Yeah. Because it's it depends on the layer of hair. I mean, you have, I don't know I'm about mule deer, but I know uh, like whitetails, you have like 
you have a bed on the leaves, but then you'll have like hair underneath. It's like, oh, that's an early season bed where the yeah. leaves never dropped and they all the fall color. But all right. Back this, to this was this was elk hair though that I found. Mm. The same thing you find on your elk hair caddis. Good fly. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> but anyways, back to the story. I wasn't finding elk hair in the beds up there on that mountain, but I did find very fresh beds. And um, there was like a feeding area about a half a mile on the other side of the mountain on the face. And then there was a scree slope where there was a very defined path across it where the animals cross. So I had these be- this bedding area and I had this path about half a mile away between like the beds and like a feeding area. So I, I put a trail camera on that path and I put a trail camera on, uh, I, I couldn't really find a very defined path to these beds. I feel like the bedding areas, once they get to them, they kind of disperse more and find their bed. You, I feel like you rarely ever find a trail that goes to a bed. Yeah, so totally. I just kind of looked at the like topography and like the terrain. I was like, I feel like the deer would come and go from this angle and followed it down until I started to find a, a trail and I put on that trail. And this was in early July and I let those cameras sit for a month and I went back up there and um, it was really windy up there and there's grass and there was uh, the memory card was full with pictures of grass blowing in the breeze. And, <laughs> and except and then the other one, there was like just no pictures hardly at all because apparently not many animals were using that trail at that time, which could be because maybe that trail is like a late season migration kind of deal where they come and they use that area. Um, so, but there were like three pictures or three videos. One was plain as day, a pretty good mule deer buck and a smaller buck. It was kind of cool too. Cause he was walking down that scree trail and this other smaller buck was coming behind him. He turned around to like run it off, like a little yeah. aggressive and then kept walking. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty I mean, okay, there's mule deer bucks up here. Like, that's what I was trying to find out. And then the one by the bedding area never got any pictures in the daytime, but it had two videos at night, which was really hard to tell because it was, you know, the infrared. And they were probably about 20 yards from the camera, 30 yards from the camera. But you could, you know, mess with the contrast and exposure to, like, try to, like, see the edges of their antlers. Um, Instagram filters, folks, are actually really good for that. Uh, and, um, And they were, like mainframe mule deer so i was like bingo okay well that's good i Um, I gotta say one thing too i feel like me and you you know we're pretty cheap hunters uh we don't have the best of the best cameras we go i go to menards or i see a sale on i don't even know what i buy a bunch of 35 dollar cameras and stick them out there (laughs) yep yep i'm still using one that i got as a gift in 2009 and one that i won at a raffle in 2018 those are my trail cameras (laughs) so every every, everybody can say like oh you're getting shitty pictures or you're having uh failed sd cards or whatever it's like well that's because you don't spend money yeah that's probably it but i'll spend money on like other things but (laughs) but anyway so i i got kind of the intel that i wanted um so what did I see when I went up there? I saw some elk rakes, rakes trees. I saw a bear sign, and then I got pictures of mule deer and found a bedding area. So I went back there in September when I got my license, and I went up there and camped out. And I'm uh, like, okay, so like that first day that I went and set those trail cameras, I hiked eight miles and 3,000 feet elevation 
all off trail. So, I mean, that's not nothing. And, um, and so I went up there with a full pack and also, like I was saying, there's no water. Like if you wanted, if I wanted to get water, I'd have to drop from my campsite. Cause I wanted to camp on the top. There's only a flat spot. And I would have to drop a thousand feet down to get water again. So I actually packed up like two gallons of water with me. And basically long story short, I made a huge effort and camped out and, um, there were no elk anywhere on that mountain. And I, I guess, uh, I just, I, I wasn't used to like the, the seasonality and the winter summer range of elk yet. I mean, um, and the other thing was that I didn't know at the time that elk will rake trees late in the winter, like getting their antlers drop and stuff like that. So those not those were not necessarily rut rubs. And maybe they could have been, but maybe it's like a t- like this year they were here, this year they weren't. But also they were wintering on that mountain, so it's very possible there were bulls up there in like January, February, March, and they were just doing that, you know, or or you know, right before they dropped their antlers. So that was a learning, that was a learning point. Um, but I, so archery season was a bust besides I went from the bottom in October again. And while I was trying to stalk in from the bottom up, I actually came upon, um, a, a black bear and I didn't kill it that night with my bow, but I came back the next morning with my rifle. And that's a whole nother story, which we've told bits and pieces of. And I got my first black bear that way, which, you know, recalling what I was seeing in the summer, lots of bear sign on that mountain. And that's not something that really stuck out to me when I was up there the first time, because I wasn't really like sold on like going specifically after bear. But looking back on it, I'm like, that makes sense. You know, that, that they were up there. He, that particular bear had dropped lower to feed on this certain zone. Um, but what, you know, the thing that, uh, really manifested itself through the preparation was I knew that there were buck mule deer up there. And so, although I wasn't able to get them with a bow and actually I ran into a really big white tailed deer with my bow up there in September that I almost had a shot at, but I just fumbled it. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't sold on shooting a white tail after I moved to Montana. And so I didn't move when I could have to get into range of this thing. And then I really regretted it afterward because once I saw like what it was, it was like a probably one forty inch white tail for for a mountain buck. It's pretty big, and um, but I wanted to go back. I'm like, okay, you know, I, I continued to bow hunt elk in September. I got that bear in October. We went on that pronghorn hunt that October too. So right. now general is coming around. I'm like, I want to shoot a mule deer, and I'm going to hunt this mountain during the rut. And mind you, like. I did not see a lot of mule deer up there, but it was an area where it's really difficult to get to. I got mule deer bucks on camera and it actually borders a neighboring unit. That's a trophy unit. This mountain does. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go and really try to hunt this for mule deer. And I went in late October. We actually got a huge blizzard. I didn't even go out opening day, which, you know, it's bad when I don't go out on opening day. But uh, it was like negative 30 degrees and it had snowed two feet. But a week later, that stuff had all melted off. And I went in there and I was really, you know, looking for rut activity to see where these things are going to poke out. And 
you can't see very far at all on this mountain. It's all very thick forested stuff. So it's all kind of, you know, still hunting. You're walking through the woods slowly. And if you see an animal, you're going to need to make a decision real quick because it's going to be less than hundred yards. And, um, so the first time I went up there, I saw a lot of does and no bucks with the does mule deer. And so I was like, okay, well the does are here, you know, any, any day now we're in November, any day now something's going to happen. And long story that I will tell on another podcast, probably with the guys who helped me pack this deer out, who I met on the mountain that day, I ended up shooting my first mule deer buck, which is a pretty good buck, four by four, um, 130 inch mule deer on that mountain, just kept pouring the coals to it because I knew there was that potential there because I had gone up there and put in all the miles, which in total that summer, I probably hiked 40 some miles on that mountain and got the cameras out. And, you know, I knew that was a possibility and I knew I felt good about that, even though it was not high densities of animals, it was a spot that could hold big animals and probably not a lot of pressure. And I, I have the patience being from the Midwest, being a stand hunter to like slowly walk through all day. And I'm, I'm okay. If I only see an animal or two, you know, like that's fine. Um, and I ended up shooting that mule there at 40 yards, stalking through the woods like that. And it was, it was because I had done my homework in that scouting, but the other things that I learned was to not go back there for elk. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one thing too, I feel like is a cool little thing that, you know, from my perspective is like, you really never had a picture of, you had a few pictures of bucks velvet. with that camera. Velvet bucks. Velvet. July. But I feel like listening to your story, it's like you had a gut instinct. Trophy unit there. There's so many things that are, well, just seeing the sign, there's so many things that lead to there's a, or a like decent bucks living up here. Mm-hmm. And I just like, like that. It's like you just listened to your guts and never gave up because it's like, there's got to be something up here. Yeah. Well, bingo, there was. Yeah, you, you kind of build, and this happens um, obviously from doing it and hunting. You you build like a, a internal memory that you're not even conscious of. Like every little detail you pick up on through the years that you're hunting, that's what makes a gut feeling. I mean, mm-hmm. like your brain is like just scrambling through all that stuff. And maybe you can't put a finger on it, but your brain knows all these things you've seen in this situation before and something telling you, I feel good about this or I don't feel good about it. Like that's another reason if you get into like a situation where you feel I'm kind of weirded out, like, is there an animal here? Or like somebody watching me, you might be like, Oh, it was probably nothing. I just got weirded out. But maybe it was like, you know, I've been in a similar situation that this happened. So kind of the mm-hmm. same thing with an animal, it's like, or with a, with a mountain like that, it's like, I don't know exactly what I'm looking at here, but I feel like this has potential. And I just, yeah, I kept going yeah. after it and I knew the mule deer were there. I just didn't know, you know, what, how many or what the potential of the size of the bucks were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that goes kind of into our, um, closing uh take-home messages of each one of those circumstances very similar circumstances new area we had to do all the ground zero kind of scouting we never had any um exposure to any of this stuff and i feel like both of us it was like just a kind of a gut instinct it's like just what we're seeing this is this is it but like i'll go first and i mean i think i think two I'll do like combination type thing, but the things of making a good hunter, if you're a good hunter, 
I feel like you are always willing to learn and keep scouting, keep looking for all this stuff, always willing to learn. Um, and then also you're just persistent. The best hunters, I don't care how smart you are. Deer are smart, but their key little ticks are water, food, cover, and having sex, you know? That's what they're focused on and staying alive, really. Predators. We give them these personas of humans of like they think like us. No, they don't. That's what they do. That's what makes them tick because a lot of times when hunters say it's like, oh, that thing was stupid. Well, they just never saw that or something didn't uh, didn't click in their brain. But I think, you know, that's that's the thing is just keep learning, keep scouting. And my circumstance, I guess, it was just keep on it, being patient, keep scouting, keep learning of all this area. Because even if you shoot a deer, you're in this area. So you just got to keep learning on each each place and keep hiking all these places, seeing different things, just like you said. So you're building that library of uh, experiences that you've seen certain things. So then when you get that gut feeling, it's like, I've been around the block a time or two. We got to listen to that. <laughs> but Yeah, and I mean, this, the scouting aspect of this is important because what we're talking about, what we've been doing lately is just covering ground in the mountains. And I mean, we just talked about you're making a huge game plan for opening day and then everything changes. But... You know, that's true and it's not true because you're also, like you're saying, when you're covering ground, you're just noticing things. And some things, you, you know, you take notes on a lot of different things, but a lot of times you just have something in your brain, like we were saying in a certain situation, says, I think I should pursue this avenue. And it's just because of all the homework you've done, not specifically in this new spot, but over the course of weeks, months, years, you've just seen all these combinations of cover type you know, habitat, yeah. pressure, distance from roads, water, like, and then down to the very fine little things like, you know, just what you're talking about, like, like a stem count. Sometimes you might like, you're not counting how many stems there are in a certain area, but it's just like, if you see it enough, you're like, okay, this looks like enough. This doesn't. And it's just kind of that feeling, you know, it's yeah. kind of like with the aspect that I found where those beds were like, I'm not going to like, get out my, you know, protractor and look at the angle of the sun and the elevation and the wind and everything. But it's like just the picture and the smell and all that in my head. Next time I come up to a situation that's similar to that, I'm, I'm going to pause when I'm in the woods and be like, this feels like a place that's something in my bed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Two things. I feel like it's kind of cool. Cause, uh, you, you see those, I feel like Okay, like I said, don't give animals a human persona. Well, okay, I am right now. So <laughs> you're 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 laying in those beds. You know what deer need, or especially mule deer or whitetails or elk to survive. Okay, they're laying in that because it's cool. It's probably summertime or something. It's a comfortable situation, and it also gives them a great opportunity to evade predators, and they can see them coming or smell them coming. That's a big thing. And then another thing I feel like, another analogy, is we're, we're just a bunch of carpenters here, I feel like. We have a belt of a bunch of tools from circumstances we've seen deer or killed deer. So the more tools, the more ways we try things and fail and also succeed, I feel like makes us better. Because the best hunters, the best fishermen I've ever fished with, 
like can catch fish or hunt and shoot deer in any circumstance because their tool belt has all the tools in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, um, that's a good reason just to be out there, um, covering ground and learning areas and looking at situations and combinations. Where did you see animals? Where didn't you? And can't do that sitting on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a simple thing of just getting out there. You know, you might be new to this. You might not have all experience, but just getting out there and just taking notes. Cause well, right now, like I said earlier, that, that, that one buck bed right here, I got a whole note of everything I saw, everything. Cause it's like when you're sitting in a buck's bed or a bed, you don't really want to do that too much. So when you're in there for the 10, 15 minutes, you got to take an account, all the little details, what's going on, how he can see. Cause I, a lot of times say a buck and cover is a dead buck because he can't see me coming. All I got to worry about is my hearing and this and this and his scent. So otherwise he can't see. So, but in your circumstance with those elk, if they're bedded on that ridge line, uh, you're going to have to create some, some creative thing to get after them or something. Yeah, but they weren't there, even but... there. I mean, like, when yeah, I'd gone if, up there, if they were there, yeah, if they were yeah. there, yeah. Um, yeah, because like when I had gone up there, there was no fresh shine, period. Like to, when yeah, I went up there to yeah. hunt it. Um, so that was a learning experience too. But uh, I will be going back up there because I just feel like, I need to kill a mule deer up on top of that mountain where I killed the one that I got was about only one third of the way up. Cause it was, they had started coming down with the rut and like the snow. Oh, so you're going more up there. Oh, so where you and I went. Yep. yep. That was not even, that was the bottom fourth, probably third. Yeah. Yeah. Third down. Yeah. So this past fall, this past fall in November, I did hike all the way to the top in in snow. It was, it was a trek. And I did see, did I tell you about that? I did see when I first got up there, there was a really big three point that had me pegged that was missing one side, an entire side. Like, and that's the other thing too, is this buck. Okay. Maybe throw this earlier in the podcast back, uh, about (laughs) other things I noticed the buck I killed had a broke off tine. And then this buck that I saw this past year had a busted antler, which means you would think there's a high density of bucks up there if they're fighting that much, but good point. It's really hard to see them because it's such thick cover and they move around a lot and they're, they're ghosts. They, they blend in really well. Um, and they know that mountain better than anything. So, but if you see like, that's another thing to key in on is like, if you see, if you see animals that have busted antlers, there's probably other ones that size or bigger around. Great point. So yeah, that's, that's a great point. You, you see busted up bucks, they're fighting like a, like all the time. You see, you know, rub sign scrapes in whitetail country. You see all that. That means there's probably a lower doe density and there's more competition for these does. So they're fighting each other. They want to breed and they bust each other up. Or there's just a big boy just bowling the heck around them. So <laughs> wouldn't you mind shooting a big boy too? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But- yeah. But... Well, hopefully everybody, this gives you a little um, uh, ambition, a little fuel to uh, get out there and do a little scouting of your own because time in the woods is all, always valuable. You always learn something. Even if you come home a little depressed because you saw something that you didn't like, 
that's still a learning opportunity, I say. So crossing stuff off um, is as important as checking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. So hope everybody uh takes the time, get outside and leads to success in the fall.